gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, a podcast in which... That's not a very nice way that you scripted this script. Did I script this script? I don't believe you. I don't think I did. <laughs> There's only two of us who do anything for this show. I bet it was Nat. It was probably Nat. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we got less than a minute in and we've already mentioned Nat. <laughs> well, he is our patron, super fan. Uh, Basically everything keeping this podcast alive. Possibly our only listener. Like, pretty much producer? <laughs> yeah, you really kind of... Uh, don't say that, like... On the air, though, because you oh, might have yeah. to. Oh, yeah. Hold on. I'll start recording like, now. Him. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> Gentle listener, I would like it known that Michael just pushed the air with his hand <laughs> as if it was a button, but it was definitely just the air. Uh, so we're off to a flying start. It's a podcast in which two nerds and sometimes others talk about books, but not scotch. I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett slash Michael Lilienthal, <laughs> and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal slash Ethan Bartlett. We did establish officially on the podcast that we are the same person. Yeah, that's so. true. So, uh, <laughs> I, everyone thought I was doing a, a sort of a lame goof, but actually I was just We're, we're all within truth. canon here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I, I do feel like something about a podcast with two people on it and one person listening is in the spirit of our book today? Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, uh, well, we'll we'll get there, but... Yep. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you wondering if we somehow did this to ourselves? Sort of a law of attraction thing where we, we have... We, we, like, the, the whole... Like, yeah, law of attraction meets Murphy's Law. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and they... they... After, and they had a baby. After one night, <laughs> and of, that baby uh, was this podcast. Real, real drunken, bitter lovemaking. They uh, birthed <laughs> this. I was gonna say we did start this show like the initial idea years and years ago that the show grew out of was an idea for an absurdist play. It's true. It's true. It absolutely was. That's that's the first concept that this title was given to. Yeah, yeah. It was an absurdist play. And it's more or less the concept that we did run with for this show. Yeah. So in, in some ways less, but also in some ways very much more. Sorry. It, it's an absurdist play absten- ostensibly. Ostensibly. Well, I haven't had a drop we're... of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we haven't established the rules yet, so you didn't even lose. I know, exactly. Uh... Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, Ostensibly, an absurdist play, ostensibly about books. Yeah. And somehow we talk about... Well, the original idea for the absurdist play was just that you and I would go into a room with a bottle of scotch, lock the door, and just, like, transcribe what happened. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a a no-exit situation, but with a bottle of scotch as the inciting incident. hell, Hell is Ethan grabbing Michael's upper thigh <laughs> but not doing anything else right right so literally what we've been doing this entire time for what like three years now yeah Oof. uh on this podcast is writing an absurdist play that's yeah what we're doing or performing an absurdist or performing play. we're actually performing what, the same but what play is every what time. is the difference between performing and writing ultimately? uh well jean paul luc sartre Moo, Camus. Yep. It's nothing. Nothing is the answer. But nothing is the answer to everything. Nothing is the answer. There only is nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is why I want the scotch. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's a that's a that's a good good uh good call. Yeah. So, uh, here is our scotch. Yummy. I've done it the bare minimum job, as you can see, of concealing it. Indeed. Uh, but what we have today is, and I'm gonna mess all of these words up even worse than I usually mess <laughs> the words in our scotches up, but it is Glen Fodry, a chill on air, uh, Speyside single malt scotch whiskey. Uh, it is the 12-year-old um, variety. I was just looking through, I went mm-hmm. to Total Line in Madison, and I was oh. just browsing the scotch aisles and i think this one caught my eye because it received 91 points from wine spectator or whatever whichever wine magazine it is that like all of the right liquor stores always quote 
And then the 18 year, which was obviously like twice as expensive or more, mm-hmm. also had received 91 points. Really? So, yeah. So I was huh. like, I don't know if that means that one's good or this one's bad. I also don't know what their point scale is. Like, right. if this is 91 out of 500, it's probably pretty bad. <laughs> I'm assuming that this is an A minus scotch. Um, this bottle, the only other main things to note, it says limited release on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so get it while you can, I guess. Um, it also says non-chill filtered, um, which, as I understand, chill filtering has to do with something about, like, it ends up making the scotch sort of smoother, but it dilutes it more. So, like, mm-hmm. non-chill filtered is, like, what the what the serious scotch boys drink, because mm-hmm. um, it has all of the flavor and, like, all of the intensity. It doesn't, you know, because, like, to get down to 80 proof, you often, like, add water or add something yeah. else. Um, but, like... Part of the whole non-chill filtered thing. As I understand it, I'm probably very wrong, but as I understand it, part of this whole thing is, like, to to leave it in its purest drinkable form. Cool. So. usually not cool because it's not chill filtered. Yeah, because there's, it has, this scotch has no chill. It's so unchill. Right. Um, so, yeah, usually I see non-chill filtered scotch for, like sort of un untouchably expensive prices. Sure. Or at least borderline. And so this was certainly a... outside the budget of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so this was a, a nice find and I hope it, it goes well for us. Mm-hmm. Uh I don't know. That's kind of all I really wanted to say. Sure. Um apparently uh a chill on ore is Scottish Gaelic for the color of gold. Oh, okay. So, that's cool. And it is a very, like, golden-hued, like, mm-hmm. sort of an, a... Amber. Yeah, gold. like a darker gold than yeah. some, some scotches. For all you ASMR listeners out there. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't hear the first conversation. They Actually, yeah. they probably did. You just don't edit this at all anymore, do you? There is no editing to be done. We're perfect in every way. <laughs> that's basically... Including our garbage, just chit-chat from the... The very beginning of the show? Right. Or the very beginning of the recording. It's not even the show yet. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, hey, Karen, my dear wife, will you come and read the rules, please? Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, Drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen, my dear wife. <laughs> Why are you giving me that look? This is how I always compliment you. <laughs> and also everybody else. I'm mm-hmm. not a horrible person. Of course not. All right. So, of course, once we clink these glasses, no more scotch talk. Uh-huh. Only book talk. Book talk. Yep. <laughs> All right. Slancha. Lachaim. I've been reading too many of those comics on Facebook about like a 
aliens. Who oh like my gosh, the stupid alien! Oh, those but comics are yeah. They're they're stupid and bad, they're and I love them. Stupid, bad, and wonderful. Yeah, but anyway, so yeah, our, our book for this time period <laughs> of human talk <laughs> um, <laughs> is *The Plains* by Gerald Murnane. Mm-hmm. Um, I meant to send you, Michael, an article that I read about Gerald Murnane that actually is what initially prompted me to order this book oh. um, off of Amazon, and this was like over a year ago, well before we even, you know, it was even a twinkle in this podcast's eye. Mm-hmm. Um, Gerald, do you, do you know anything about him? other than Only what I have discovered through this reading. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, the New York Times wrote an article about him, and they said, like, this is this is the Australian recluse writer who might, like, be the next one to win the Nobel Prize in literature. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I've read articles before like that, and they always say, like, this could be the next Nobel Prize winner, and then it's like, no, it's not gonna be, you know, Kazuo Ishiguro, Guro. it's uh, uh, gonna be some like French detective novelist who's barely translated into English, but nice try, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. like, I think the Nobel committee is very secretive about how they, uh, nominate and award and like, you can try to predict them, but like, good luck. But anyway, for whatever that's worth, um, Gerald Murnane, according to this New York times article is a man who lives in the Australian outback, like on the plains, you know, he lives in sort of like the, the rural, like, mm-hmm. the Australian equivalent of if you lived on, like, a ranch in Montana, I guess. Yeah. Um, he bartends at the local bowling alley. Um, of course he does. And then he writes. And supposedly, like, 90% or more of what he writes is he never intends to publish in his lifetime. Sure. Um, now, he is a big enough deal in the in the sort of high higher art, I guess, literary community, the academic literary community that he does know that he's going to be studied in the future. Uh-huh. Um, and he even intends his unpublished writings to be studied. Um, and apparently he often, he like has a running sort of imaginary dialogue with the grad student who will eventually <laughs> study the archives of his unpublished uh. work, who he calls future creature. So mm-hmm. he, he, he uh, uh, has a lot of notes scattered through like various of his, notebooks and files that begin dear fc mm-hmm. as in dear future creature mm-hmm. um so this man really is sort of like jd like the legend of jd salinger but almost cranked up a, sure. a notch or two yeah so and some of that i do think comes through in the text yes. of the plays yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um that's that's just and i don't like i don't necessarily like you know reading autobiography autobiography into a novel right you know i think that most most author, most authors of fiction of any kind would probably tell you that if they wanted to write an autobiography they wouldn't write fiction you mm-hmm. know they'd just write their autobiography so even like clearly very autobiographical novels i'm suspicious of Mm -hmm. like why what what was your reason for writing a novel either you're lazy a coward or like you have some intentionality here Mm -hmm. so uh, now that i've started us off on a very biographical note i do want to say i don't know that it's necessary to a reading of this or any book right right although it does this book does make it kind of hard not to yeah (laughs) not to at least wonder yeah exactly um yeah for sure uh so that that said uh i i'm gonna ask the uh question i often ask that is very bad that they told us not to ask when um Uh when they were teaching us to how to teach and how to lead discussions in a classroom they Uh said you know ask specific questions don't ask extremely vague and open-ended questions but michael what did you think of this novel oh that's a dumb question Wow. <laughs> Just go ahead and, like, shoot me right in the foot first. And... Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I... Okay, first off, I enjoyed this novel a lot. It's unique. Absolutely. But also familiar. Yeah, okay. Um, sure. Like, okay, so the structure of this novel, like, what is the plot of this novel? I don't know 
Like, I can kind of answer it. Right. But also, it's super unsatisfactory to answer it. Sure, yeah. Because there's so much more than the plot. Telling what the plot of this novel is is not helpful. If somebody were to, if somebody were to see me reading this book and say, oh, what's that about? Right. I could tell them, but that would not make them want to read it. (laughs) No, and that's, that's roughly similar to, like, if you ask me the the exact same vaguely worded question, yep. my like one one line answer would just be, "I love this novel, mm-hmm. but I don't know why." Sure. Well, I... and part of it is that precisely the problem with answering the question of what this book about, what this book is about, yeah, and giving an answer to it, thereby nullifying anyone's interest in actually reading it, right. is exactly what this novel is about. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very true, and. It, you know, there are certain novels where um, really the point is not what it's about or what the sure. plot is. Uh, and so here, here's me about to, like, if anyone were to ever, you know, do a Michael and Ethan drinking game, <laughs> um, this episode would have them plastered already because I'm about to show compare this novel to Tristram Shandy. Oh, good. It's very similar, though. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. You know, you have to admit, in in the sense that, like, Tristram Shandy is another one of these books that you could describe the plot, but that wouldn't go any direction in yep. telling a reader what this yep. book was about. Mm-hmm. It's about it's almost about the fact that it doesn't have a plot, and it's about immersing yourself in the experience. Yes, um, of it, and it it does that sort of thing that you know, as a high school student, I discovered that was a thing, and I wanted to do it, but then discovered that everybody did it, and so I couldn't do it because it would be cliche, and that's writing about writing. Yeah. And writing about how writing is insufficient. Right. And writing about how words are dumb. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Using words to say that words suck. Right. And the thing is... Sort of like... Joe Manane I mean, creates a masterpiece of that. Right, yeah, absolutely. And, I don't know, I, I got to a point where... I think I think you've charted an interesting arc actually that I think is is um not uncommon in that when you're a young writer or someone interested in literature at all often what is most attractive to you is that writing about writing yeah. mm-hmm. thing um partly because uh you 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 feel like when you're young enough you feel like you don't you know, because everyone tells you to write what you know. Exactly. Like, exactly. I'm not That's Ernest Hemingway. I haven't, like, climbed the snows of Kilimanjaro. I haven't or, gone on a safari in Africa. Yeah, or, like, done a, <laughs> done a bullfight while the sun also rises. Right, so, or, like, that that advice just is super discouraging, and then you're like, but it, I could write about writing, but no, everybody does that. And it's well, not only really does everybody do that, but, like, the better you get at being someone who could write about writing, the less you tend, at least I find, the yeah. less you tend to want to. Yeah. Um, partly because you do get, I don't even know if it's experiences so much as perspective. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Because I've, I this this may be coming out of a, a sort of thought experience that I had recently, where you know when I was young I had that exact same thing. You know, I was sixteen, I wanted to be a writer, but I was like, I what have I done? I've you know lived in this white bread town in in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, done nothing, seen nothing, been nowhere, and like you know, the only gunshots that have been in this town in the last 50 years have been from, from a uh, deer hunting. You know? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, I, I have nothing now that I'm, now that I'm 30. Um, and at some point we might have to address both of our existential crises of having just turned 30. What? Um, I haven't turned 30. You have. I did not. And this seems this. even less healthy than my reactions to turn, turning 30 were. But anyway, I look back on my high school days and like I was homeschooled. Mm-hmm. I was homeschooled kindergarten through twelfth grade, mm-hmm. um, and not that like that's you know the equivalent of like going on a safari in Africa or anything, but homeschooling is a real weird world. <laughs> and like the more I talk to people who were not in that world, and like the less directly they were, you know, in that world, the more I find that I'm able to say things to them that just blow their mind Uh like uh this was your childhood like the fact that you know there is some homeschool joke on the internet about playing fort ticonderoga as a playground game Uh in grade school and i had to pause and figure out why that was a joke and not just what everybody did Uh um you know and like 
I think a large part of what happens is not necessarily even that you have those experiences so much as you get the perspective on yep. the experiences that you do have. Um, and I would submit that in order to write about writing and in order to write as Gerald Murnane does in this novel about sort of the weakness of words and, mm -hmm. you know, you almost have to go to the exact opposite side of a writing life from where you are at the age of 16. Um, sure. I think to, you know, to really affect, because it's art about art, you know, movies yep. that are about movies are similar where mm -hmm. it's like, unless this movie is a masterpiece, it falls into being self-indulgent garbage. If right. It's, if it's a Which Hollywood Which kind of begs the question, too, of some of those things. Like, if, with movies about movies, if they're good, they should appeal to a broader audience than those involved in exactly. movies. And exactly. So a book about writing right. should be, if it's good, of a broader appeal than just to people who are writers. Right. And again, that's almost like impossible to do at that beginning stage mm -hmm. in your in your development where it's the most attractive to you right like you almost have to divest yourself of everything that makes it attractive to you yep before you can get back to where it's where it's yeah. something that you can do effectively sure mm -hmm. so that's my that's my thought about writing about writing yeah um it, you know and and you're right in a sense that like Almost literally everyone has done this because this goes back to Plato. Yeah. In um, uh, now I can't remember which work is it Gorgias, where he talks about rhetoric. Um, oh, okay. And the weakness of rhetoric. It's it's either Gorgias or um one of the other ones. I I know what you're talking about. I don't remember. I don't have all of the the dialogues divided clearly in my brain. Yeah, I mean I clearly have them divided less clearly than I thought. But <laughs> um, in one of one of Plato's dialogues, he he talks about um or he has his characters talk about the it's it's the whole myth of Thoth or the myth of Thuth. Yeah, um, yeah. And the idea that words themselves are inherently limiting, mm -hmm. right? Uh that, you know, you you there's there's there are as many downsides to a written culture, a written language, as there are upsides, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that you lose something when you write, and you lose something even by putting things into language, except, of course, this is a written yep. work of literature. Yep, yep. Um, Which, that whole idea is just, like, that goes back to the, it, kind of paradoxically here, goes back to... Thinking back to my youth, uh -huh. back in the good old days, back in the, when we uh, in the days of walked six miles to school uphill both yeah, ways exactly. and we liked it. Uh, right, in a blizzard, barefoot. <laughs> um, um, when, like, okay, so with, with writing, when I first came across that idea, my initial reaction was, stop bashing on writing, I love writing. Yeah. But also, if I actually reflect on it, the paradox is... I feel the same way mm -hmm. about it because how many notebooks do I have that I have bought when they were empty because I loved the idea of this empty notebook, wrote down a paragraph or two, and then stopped because I yeah. couldn't go further because I'd ruined it. Right. Um, that's you know that's exactly the the same idea here that by putting words on a page you've ruined that empty page. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which is something that he gets at in this, like yeah, the, the idea of um, it, well, it's in the introduction here too. Ben Lerner, who does yeah. the introduction to this, um, which I did my usual thing um, that I do with introductions, where I read the whole book and then, and then went came back, back and to the introduction. read the introduction. That's the way and to do it. No, it it almost is. I don't. I I obviously don't know what Ben Lerner was thinking specifically when he wrote this introduction, but to me, it almost reads like it's intended that way. Like yeah. he knew that most of the people would would come back and read would the introduction yeah afterwards yeah um, or at least that half of them would and he was writing for both audiences but, but yeah he gets way. he gets back, uh, at this um this dichotomy between uh, the possible and the actual yes um and how when you make something actual you've killed something possible right yeah <laughs> it's a much you know what we haven't done what have we... oh we haven't have we yeah ah uh, well. 
Gentle we haven't listener. spoiled anything. We yeah, haven't we given haven't away the plot. Spoiled anything? <laughs> we haven't given away the plot. You're right because it's impossible to spoil, and there's no plot to give away. But to understand why that's amazing, we are going to need you to uh, hit pause. Um, actually, probably just hit stop, just so that your cassette tape doesn't do that oh whole thing gosh. where it, it like winds all over itself. It's not going to do that. Breaks. It's not going to do that. Um, it's because but... you're so old, you can't think of any technology past cassette tapes. And I'm clearly a, a young buck, you old man. You all right? Clearly disproving everything you just said was the fact that you described yourself as a young buck. <laughs> you were almost believable up to that point, but then you just, like, kicked your own butt. Uh, by saying actual words, I ruined the possibility, the possibility of that people believing were... me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I hate that you did that, that you stretched it there, and I hate everything. I hate everything. Gentle listener, just give me a minute here. Go read this book. It's good. We promise. <laughs> Even though we'll never be able to tell you why. Exactly. <laughs> and we're back. Wasn't it great? It was. You're right. It was. Uh, Don't you wish you hadn't read it? Because if you hadn't read it, then you could have a possibility of what oh, this book could have been. Oh, and that would be much greater. And it, yep. it reminds me in a much more frivolous example of a. I think it's in a Terry Pratchett novel where someone's, you know, bratty younger brother is described as, like, he would be the worst possible scenario for, like, he always wants treats, you know, he always wants sweeties, but, Mm -hmm. like, the worst possible scenario for him would be to be in a room full of them, because by choosing one, he would be actively not choosing any of the other ones. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I know Um, how that goes. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very... It's interesting. It's because it's a human nature. Thing. Exactly. It's it's human experience, and somehow, yeah. like both Terry Pratchett and Gerald Murnane have put it into words. Here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Another uh, uh thing that's quoted in the introduction, um, that I thought of just on your very first initial comments about, um, not being able to describe the plot was just this this quoted paragraph from uh from the plains. A plainsman would not. Only yes. claim to be ignorant of the ways of other regions, but willingly appear to be misinformed about them. Mm-hmm. Most irritating of all to outsiders, he would affect to be without any distinguishing culture, rather than allow his land and his ways to be judged part of some larger community of contagious tastes or fashions. So it is literally something that defies definition. I mean, almost to the point that you could easily say that if you accurately summarized the book... Um, that's Gerald, not the book. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> not only is that not the book, but Gerald Murnane might like try to take the book out of your hands and everybody else's hands and burn it all and start over. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think that's too much of a stretch. Yeah. No. Especially considering that late in the book we get a whole passage about someone who um, is so worried about the purity of the text he's producing that eventually he talks himself out of producing it altogether. Yes. Oh, so good. <laughs> like, how to make failure feel like success Yeah. in this is, like, it's something, like, that's very zen. <laughs> it is very zen, yeah. And, um, ah, it's, it's remarkable. Um, I want to talk just briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Just, like, we have the same edition of yeah. the book here. I don't know what other editions look like, but the I, w- I was going to bring this up. Masterful. Yeah. Because, okay, you look at the cover, and it's called The Plains, and it's kind of this sort of uh, impressionist depiction of plains, because you've got this fuzzy blue blob at the top that's like the sky, and then a fuzzy yellow blob that's huge in the middle, it's like the, the dead grassy plains, and then uh, a fuzzy green blob that's like the, the green part of the plains, and then a fuzzy black blob that's like the, well, it's the, the, the other bar, dirt underneath. Yeah. Um, Which... And so it's like... Look, it's the planes. This is what the planes is. This is what right. it's going to be about. And then, like, if you take this cover off, the book is black. <laughs> it's just like so. Like, what's underneath the planes is kind of a theme here. What's beneath this? There has to be meaning beneath this. What right. is it? And you see nothing here. Right. And that's not a nihilistic sort of thing. Right. It's actually something that's the opposite of nihilistic. It's an omnistic sort of thing. You just, did you pull anything when you made that reach? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, 
<laughs> just the idea that like potential is existence is existence yeah except it's not except it's not yeah um which it's interesting so you quoted that passage uh from the introduction here mm-hmm. um the whole uh almost anything was possible other than the actual um and that's actually uh from it's that that passage specifically is not from the plains Mm-mm. um it's from a short story that uh Murnane wrote called land deal which at the same time that i got the plains originally i got um a book called stream systems which was is it, the subtitle is something like co- the collected mm-hmm. short fiction of gerald Murnane. i'm not a hundred percent sure if it's all of his published short fiction but it's it seems like it's most of it at least um, and I did actually read that book after uh, reading this one mm. in the in the run up to this show, since I you know I'd been meaning to read it anyway. I I would say I will say I got I loved the planes. I got about two thirds of the way through Stream System because mm. um, uh, a lot of it gets very sort of repetitive, like it's it's very similar stories over and over. Mm-hmm. But you know I think these were released over the course of several decades, and I'm sure, sure that they made perfect sense to write and to read in the time that they were released, but mm-hmm. not necessarily um, the best experience to read them all back to back. But very, also a very good book. But I digress. Uh, Land Deal is a short story written from the perspective of the Aborigines oh. in Australia. And so what this passage is about in the, in the context of the story, um, it's about the the things that the Aborigines, that the natives acquired from European Interesting. Uh, migrants and, and uh, huh. you know, invaders, however, whatever uh, term you want to use there. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, uh, the, the greater part of the passage is, uh, it says something about, I forget, let's see, trying to, to decide, mm-hmm. and this passage here is not actually helpful, but I'm trying to remember if it's written in first person oh. it might be written in first person plural um mm. it certainly has that sense even if it is written in third sure. person but it's basically you know from from this this uh the perspective of these natives um which does color the plains itself to me in a in a different way too because okay. that was one thing that i kept thinking of as i was reading through it is that you know there's sort of there's sort of a like absurdist surrealist fantasia going on but it Mm. is all on a fantasia on stuff that clearly exists and i kept wondering like is the the aboriginal presence like the the native presence is that in the author's mind at all Mm. um because you know it's it's to to i'm not trying to like say that if he left them out you know he's racist or problematic necessarily because to include them at all you might have to include a lot of them Mm -hmm. um but as it went on it came to feel like almost an intentional absence as though the uh the sort of potential for narcissism and certainly for like solipsism that yeah that is one of the central themes of this book that maybe um, sort of that Aboriginal, that like tribal, and this is just me spitballing, but maybe that like tribal mentality um, of I am not one person, I am like subsumed in the tribal identity. Right. That maybe something about that, or something else about you know the Aboriginal identity or experience was like so anathema to the themes of this book that yeah, you know, there's there's almost like a a an empty space sculpted yeah. out of it where they should be, but they sure. aren't. Uh, and well, and even the first line might, if you consider that, the first line of the novel itself kind of leads into that because our narrator is not original to the plains, even yeah. within like the lifetime of the immigrant population, the non-originals. Yeah. He came twenty years ago. Yeah, and uh, I think that's that that may be part of what I'm picking up here because it does seem in various different ways like everybody in the novel is a sort of invader sure um the Mm -hmm. the narrator is the uh the patron whose you know branch he cut or whatever estate he comes to live on in a sense is an invader in that sense that he you know clearly built this estate onto the landscape Mm -hmm. um yeah 
But uh, to go back to the short story Land Deal, um, I as I recall the the beginning of that story talks about uh, some some lines about like you know we we knew what guns were we knew what you know flint and steel could do we knew all of these things before the the Europeans ever arrived mm-hmm. we just knew them as possibilities not mm-hmm. as actualities sure and the, it portrays us the sort of the trade with the Europeans as like them sort of coming into what they had always known was possible uh-huh. um, and, and sort of almost like they're uh-huh. pulling it into reality. That's uh, fascinating. Right? Yeah, no, and absolutely, after reading this, I do want to read more of Gerald and Renane, so that might be something yeah. that I'll have to look into at some point. Yeah, yeah, I might, um, might have to load you up with the stream system when you yeah. get out of here. Um, but there's uh, the you mentioned the the sub theme in here of um, like solipsism. Yes. Which I definitely picked up on. You better believe it. Um, <laughs> is it is, is it because it was in every single line starting with the first one? Maybe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the that idea of him looking here in the first paragraph, he looked for anything in the landscape that seemed to hint at some elaborate meaning behind appearances. Yeah. And then the end of the second paragraph. Uh, is um, I clearly recall a succession of days when the flat land around me seemed more and more a place that only I could interpret. Uh, and that doesn't stop. Yeah. So, speaking of plot and things, the character arc of this character is perhaps only deeper into solipsism? Yeah, I would, I was, as you said, character arc the thought that popped into my head was just, I don't know if I would call it an arc so much as sort of a slide. A or slide. A yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You sort of, you that that terminology... Doesn't fit. Well, it, it you know, it's, it's, uh, it's colloquial, or not colloquial, but it's, it's, it's correct, technically, but yeah. um, that, I was going to say that terminology sort of implies, you know, a shape, right? Like yeah. you, you, usually I, when I see it, when I literally see it mapped out on like a whiteboard during a, sure. a talk or something, um, it's it is an arc that's sort of going up and bent, but it's like starts in the lower part of the board and sort of arcs upward and does come back down, but it doesn't like go all the way back down. So right, it's, not necessarily. It's yeah. The theory in like your classical like hero's journey type yep. um, story is like the character has grown, so he yep. sort of arcs upward. Yep. Right. Um, I think if you were to draw this character's arc, quote unquote, yep. on a board, the most accurate way to describe or to draw it would just be a straight diagonal line starting in the upper corner of the board and just going down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, because then if you compare that beginning to the end here, yes. um, second to last page, um, he talks about himself looking out into the empty zone ahead of him. Uh, I was far concerned with those who might one day examine the faulty prints in my patron's jumbled collection and see me as a man with my eyes fixed on something that mattered. Even the few who had heard or read of my efforts to discover a fitting landscape, even they might have supposed that I sometimes looked no further than my own surround than my surroundings. No one afterwards could point to a single feature of whatever place I stared at. It was still a place out of sight and a scene arranged by someone who was himself out of sight, but anyone might have decided that I recognized the meaning of what I saw. Um, I'm going to just end it there. Uh, that's not the last sure. paragraph, second to last paragraph. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, the point that I want to bring out on this is he, in the beginning, is trying to find meaning in the planes around him. At the end of the book, he is hoping that someone else tries to find meaning in him. Sure. So the idea of that solipsism going it, it it in increases itself in the idea of I'm the only one who can interpret this unto the point that someday someone is going to try to interpret me. Right. And there's a tone and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but the tone I picked up both here and throughout when I mm-hmm. read it was that that interpretation will be wrong. Yes. Mm-hmm. That maybe maybe self important sort point. of thing here too. Well yeah it, but it's it's and it's almost even that that last sentence in the it, that you read just now, um, but anyone might have decided that I recognized the meaning of what I saw. To me, there it reads 
there's like a yes. frustrated control. Yes, 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 yes. G- desire going on mm-hmm. where he wants to appear like someone who has all the answers, who who knows the meaning to things, and um, he doesn't, and he's frustrated by that fact. But at least he's holding on to this idea that someone someday will think that he does and hope to figure it out, and they also will be frustrated and not figure it out. And he finds some solace in that. Sure, yeah. Um, it, it also reminds me of a, a quote that I heard someone say somewhere at some point. I don't remember. Um, good, good sighting. Thank you. Um, that um, the, the phrase to, um, or the sentence, there is no God, yes. is itself a flawed sentence because it is assuming that you have omniscience and know everything that exists, and therefore you know that God does not exist. Right. And therefore you are also claiming to be God right. by having omniscience. Right. Uh, which which is kind of the feel I get from this guy, too, oh. except that he realizes in the end that that's what he's doing. Yeah. And can't figure out how to stop doing that. Right. And I feel like, I, I, I don't know, I think that... Uh... I think that more recently in sort of postmodern philosophy or whatever has sort of come after postmodern philosophy, right? Um, I think that there's been this turn away from sentences like "there is no God" yep. for that specific reason, yep. <laughs> and that it's it tends to be more sentence. The more careful thinkers and writers tend to say things more like. As far as I can tell, there is no God, yep. mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. To the best of my knowledge, or yeah. I feel... Or to or... the best of the, the data yep. that I feel is available, or whatever. Um, and I feel like this, this uh, especially this ending, is almost drilling down into that the first clause of a sentence like that, that as far as I can tell mm-hmm. thing, because it's it almost reads to me like a stripping away of what you can tell or even what you can expect a reader to be mm-hmm. able to tell. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I had another point beyond that, but if I did, it's lost. Eh. You know, to the nothingness. <laughs> yeah, to, to the ether. Anyone might have decided that I had a point beyond that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it occurs to me, <laughs> partly because of the, uh, the uh, satirical fantasia I did on that sentence, that... <laughs> Um, it might be interesting to go through this book and, it, like, do a reading of it specifically to underline all of the f- words and phrases that are hedging. Oh, man. Words like might and maybe and, yeah. you know, just partly because Good. anyone might have decided that I, rec- you know, yeah. that there's that, like, hedging um, mm-hmm. uh, phrase there. Again, I was far more concerned with those who might one day examine the faulty prince. Yep. Uh, even the few who had heard or read of my efforts to discover a fitting landscape might have supposed... Which is, is it's hedging, but also that underscoring of possibility over actuality. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, now I'm... Cause I, I, it occurred to me, even as I was reading those passages just now, that, uh, you know, that's, that is a sort of um, speculative passage uh-huh. going on. And so it, uh, now I'm trying to just sort of open at random and see if there are other places where I can... I can uh, sure, sure. Words. So I'm on 143 here at random. From just one of all the windows in all the rooms of this library, I sometimes see my patron's eldest daughter mm. on some pathway... So you got sometimes and some, yep. uh, which n- obviously not quite the same, but that's still that like hedging or that that less well, it's, definite. It's, it's, it's avoiding concreteness. Yeah, uh, which is yet another one of the uh, ways that this novel almost goes out of its way to like punch in the face all of the rules of like writing a popular novel. Yeah, like all of the rules you're told about appealing to your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 goes. The first time I had the thought just just uh, here today was um, back when we were quoting that uh, um, that passage about a plainsman would not 
would not only claim to be ignorant of the ways of other regions, but willing appear, willingly appear to be misinformed about them. Mm-hmm. That whole thing is very much sort of a, you know, you it's the opposite of appealing to the broadest common denominator or the broadest yeah. audience. It's it's literally saying that the, the more that my audience broadens, the more I hate it and the less I want it. Sure. Um, and it's it's uh. Similarly, with with the non-use of details, you know that's yep. like that's like fiction writing one hundred and one, right? You yep. More more concrete details. Don't just say that he went outside and it was cold. Say that you know he went went down the three stairs, stepped onto the concrete, and he started to shiver and his breath fogged in the air. Uh huh. You know, uh-huh. and, and the stairs were. Were at the bottom of beneath his door, and he was at one forty one Park Place. Right, you know, kind of it, make your readers feel like they are present. Yeah, make it real. In, yeah, which this novel does the opposite of. Yes, it it it, it almost intentionally befuddles. Yes, and. But not in like a fun mystery novel way. No, it, it more it's, in like a screw you for wanting to know kind yep, of way. How dare you read this novel kind of way? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which like is, is is almost the the opposite end of how dare you write this novel? Yes. How dare you even? How dare you read it? it yeah. It's a crime for this being written. It's a crime for it being read. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. To uh to bring our second Nat sighting of the episode, I remember Nat. Oh, there he is. Oh, oh, and he he ate my my autobiography of Mark Twain, and then he vanished into the woods. Oh. That scamp. <laughs> um, the so the uh, I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh, Nat, Nat, I want to say it may even have been a Facebook post, or else it was a blog post. But uh, one thing he said that stuck sticks with me is um, that to him uh, a writer or a you know a story whether it's a movie or whatever has to work very hard um to convince him that it's real because the whole time he's very aware that it's not so if a character that sort of um paradox you know when we talk about gene wolf novels how you can very easily spiral down to what's actually happening it's a book yeah yeah (laughs) exactly and he he, nat's like there immediately sure um so you know he he very much hates like out of character things unless they're done exactly right because he said he told me one time his immediate response to a character doing something is like yes they're fiction they might do anything that mm-hmm. you have to sort of work a lot harder for him to uh, make make that convincing and make sure. him care um, and I you know and I feel like the best writers whether they're thinking of it in those terms or not are doing that to a certain extent except Gerald Murnane here is once again really just kind of punching that right in the face. Yep. Just, just, uh, he's almost throwing in your face the fact that this is a novel, that this is, yeah. you know, nothing, there's, um, and that you just need to deal with it, I yeah. guess. Yeah. There, there's a layer to that, too, where this is set in Australia, written by an Australian. However, there was something said in the introduction, um, that it's a, an entirely fictional Australia. Yeah. That it's not actually Australia. And to that, I want to know how accurate his depictions of various things are sure. as far as Australia goes. Because like, the, the introduction even says that um, people, I think it says something like this, maybe I'm making it up, I don't know, that uh, like Midwesterners in the United States can kind of see echoes of the Great Plains in yeah. this as well. Yeah. Um, and reading it and living in the Midwest, I can, but also... Like, there are points at which the the plains of Australia that he depicts here are so utterly foreign to me. Sure. And one of those things is, and I don't know how much of a conversation we're going to get into on this, because I don't know how much I want to say about it. Uh It's all potential right now. Uh, (laughs) But when you're listening to it, it's actual. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you can uh, hit the fast forward button on your tape player and... Uh, just skip right to what the conclusion is. Not tape player, but you can hit the skip button on your podcast player. Anyway, right, that you play your yeah, podcast. Yeah. Uh, so this the whole part one of uh, this uh, this book because it's is it in it's in two parts. Yes, right? Yeah, right. Two parts. So. so part one is largely him trying to find a patron for his art. Yeah. 
Which strikes me as incredibly bohemian. Yeah. And it's very European. Yes. It's a it's a very European sensibility. There's there's three parts of this book. Three parts. By the way, but um, that's right. Yeah. Three parts. Part part one is well over half of the actual yep. page yep. count of the book. Yeah. And the the remaining two parts are half of the book very is, is uh, divided between the other two parts. So. That's right. Um, yeah, but that whole segment where he's waiting for a patron, and you've got this bar that's just full and of artists. And actually looking for a patron. And he's, yeah, it's full of artists and historians and cartographers and whatever else looking for patrons. And the patrons come in and lock themselves into this secret back room yes. where they do whatever they want. And that's, you know, maybe another layer of this sort of potential and actual where you're left to kind of imagine what they're like until he actually lays it out in dialogue form. Right. Uh, what they're doing back there, which... Which, again, is is very intentional, that that uh, yeah potential versus actual dichotomy. That, um, especially with that format of turning it into almost a, a stage play sort of Well, no, I, I mean before thing. that. Oh, sure, sure, just, sure. Just that, that you know... It, could literally be almost anything yep. um, happening back there. And then when it does get into, and you're right, it does seem almost, you know, I was thinking of Samuel Beckett already by the time I got okay. to that passage. And then I was like, oh, well, so it is just Samuel Beckett. Yeah, pretty um, much. But he, yeah, yeah. So, you know, what I was going to say, though, is is when he's waiting, when he's, you know, looking for, for admittance. Yes, waiting, waiting for... For Godot, his his Australian art patron. Yep. Um, he, you know, the the landowners might be doing almost anything back in right. there. And, and then when he gets admitted, it turns out that they are doing almost anything. Yep. It's it's trying to trade. He 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 puts in this this um kind of script dialogue form their conversation, and it's about eight different conversations happening. Yeah. It's really hard to trace any single I, one of them. I do freaking love. That passage, like, it it's might be one so of my good. favorite passages, but it is just a headache. It is. It's frustrating. Yeah. Which I think Murnane loves the idea of just frustrating his <laughs> readers here. But yeah. But that, okay, so, like, imagining this and trying to envision this, though, my whole point here is that it, the, the setting and everything is ambiguous, so it's whole, so hard to imagine yourself in it. So trying to imagine this and imagine the reality of these landowners. Yes. They are somehow a blend of your typical Midwestern farmer and Lord Grantham. Yes. <laughs> and, um, I was going to try to describe that in more detail, but you said Lord Grantham, and that's all we need. That's it, yep. And I don't know what else. They, they, don't, they can't exist. They can't possibly exist. Yeah. They, they are so unbelievable to me. I would, trying to read into this, and I don't know, I, this book did make me wish that I knew more about, like, Australian sure. history and culture. And that's, 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 that's so exactly forth. my problem with this, because, like, I don't know how much of my befuddlement is the fact that I'm not an Australian, and yeah. how much of it is just the genius of his writing here. Which I it, almost feel like is actually better. Yeah. Like, I, I kind of, I, you know, kind of wish I had... Uh, gotten off my butt and done more prep for this podcast. Sure. But I would have wanted to do it in the order of reading the planes, then doing the research. Sure, yeah. I would, I, yep. For my, at least my first time reading it, I almost would not have wanted to know. Absolutely. Um, partly because I do think that Murnane is the type of author who would tell you everything you need is contained in this piece of art. Sure, sure. He, he gave, you know, he gives you everything that you need yeah. for the piece of art. He gives it, it to you with it. Sure. Um, um, but it does it does leave me wondering at the yeah, same time. No, absolutely. And part of that, too, is... So it, it, he's, he's in this town, primarily in this bar, yeah. trying to find a patron. And that's super ambiguous and hard to imagine. And then you kind of start to get a handle on what everything looks like and feels like. And then he's at this patron's house. Yes. He's living with this landowner. When I picture that in my mind... Uh-huh. I am essentially picturing this big mansion of a house on the plains. I don't even know how accurate that is because it's described in such ambiguous terms that it could be a castle. It could be a silly little farmhouse. 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's definitely it's big. big. That's yes. not ambiguous. That's not ambiguous. No, but it's big. and Literally everything what... else is ambiguous. Though. Exactly, because then you've got this thing, and I'm imagining a little bit of grass with some hills over it, and then everything else is just dark and stormy, and I don't know what's out there. Yeah. Which is exactly what he wants. Yeah. That's yeah. what he wants you to picture, Absolutely. that everything around you could be anything. Right. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way he makes you picture it without saying exactly that uh-huh. is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. agree. That's uh, uh, Maybe looking at our timestamp, that's actually a decent way to wrap the episode, huh? Sure. Unless you had anything else you wanted to specifically get in on. I mean, on if I start episode. in on anything else, it's going to take another episode's worth to yeah, that's, that's wrap it all up. Yeah, that's sort of where so. I'm at myself. Well... Thank you for once again, gentle listener, for listening. So, we, uh, excuse me, Michael just, just, like, put the script in front of me, and that's when my mind went blank. <laughs> um, you were denying the actual words on the page. Yes, because and seeking out I was something better. so enamored of all the possible, <laughs> the possible words. So, um, thank you for listening. I said that already. Yes, you did. You got two thanks. You owe me one back. We Which next... means rate us on iTunes. Yes. Five stars. That's how Please, you Please, five, five stars. That's how you give... Yeah, you're right. That's how you give a thanks back. You you rate you rate us five stars. Yep. Um, so, yeah, next episode we will still be reading The Plains. Yep. Um, so if you haven't started reading it, we've spoiled nothing, but please do read it. It's an experience, and we can't describe it to you. Um, because to describe it would be to lie about it. Yeah. And also to actualize what is really only a set of possibilities. Yep. So, uh, if that doesn't make you want to read a book, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, so please read along. Give us your feedback. You can use the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. You can uh, shoot us a line at Room with Scotch on Twitter. You can come join the Tapestry Radio Tap House, our exclusive group that we let anyone into as long as they are not a scammer, a Nazi, a robot, or a mere possibility that is not actualized. Well, literally anything could be going on in that very secretive tap house. Yeah, and you, you know can't know until you, until you, until you gain you admittance. Um, you can also just follow our public page, Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. You can contact us there. Yep. Pretty much anything. Well, pretty much... We'll pretty much respond if to anything. If you whisper probably. your questions and comments into an acorn, and plant that acorn in the ground, <laughs> and water it daily, and let it grow in 30 or 40 years, that oak tree that grows from that acorn will shed a leaf that will blow on the wind, and it will reach one or the others of our residences with its message, and it will whisper that into our ears. And then we will respond to it. I was... You looked at me in distress a couple times during that, and I was like, no, you jumped into this Usador the Blue swimming pool, and I'm gonna let you drown in it. But you did. You swam all the way to the other side and brought that thing home, which is actually real impressive. That's, so. that's how you learn to swim. You just jump into the deep end, cry at your mother while she laughs at you, and you survive. Well, this isn't therapy, but thank you for that <laughs> set of mental images. Um, we will also do your homework. We won't do it well. We don't condone plagiarism. Maybe we do condone plagiarism because of how funny it would be if you turned in any of our garbage homework. That would be hilarious. Please um, plagiarize us. Yeah, we, this podcast has officially flipped its position on <laughs> plagiarism. Please do plagiarize us. Uh, we... Yeah, uh, for for an example of how bad we do homework, um, listen to our recent homework special in which we give 84 interpretations of Tobias Wolf's uh, short story, Smokers. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's fun. We have fun. You might have fun until you get put in jail for plagiarism. And we will laugh. And we will laugh, like Michael's mother apparently throwing him <laughs> in the deep end. <laughs> Um, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Uh, we have Intermission, our audio drama podcast. I'm going to try to do this one blind. Go for it. We have Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United RPG real play podcast. 
Close. You left out just tabletop. That's it. Okay. Like tabletop United. That's the name of the system we use. The last, the last but, one when I said tabletop, you said I was wrong. I don't think you said it about tabletop, but that's the point in my spiel at which the wrong came. So now I'm <laughs> scared of that word, <laughs> which sounds like trying to train my brother's dumb pitbull mix. Well, it was my goal to make you afraid of words. <laughs> well, you and Gerald Murnane, you've really done a tag team job on me here. So, yeah, we have we have Pokemon United. It is a very good podcast. It's not I was, Pokemon United. It's Pokemon Rollout. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Um, but it's a very good podcast either way. I was on it once, but yep. the, rest, the rest of them are good. Um, we also have Here's Johnny, our uh, horror... Films and Games Review Podcast, yep. um, which is very good. We were almost guests on that almost. one. Almost. If, if my audio and one of their hosts' audio hadn't both crapped out, I think Oh, was it both of it. them? Yeah, it was both. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Um, I was thinking it was secretly my audio, so now I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, very good, very good show. If you like horror movies um, at all, they're... Uh, very smart and very sort of, uh, mm-hmm. I think they always use the word respectful. Um, I don't know if, if I wouldn't not describe it that way, but I think what, what, what it is, is they're just not like sort of glorying in the, like the masochistic pleasure of making yeah. you hear things. They're more evaluating these things as, um, artistic yep. sort of, uh. Uh, works of art basically mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. you know really good horror movies certainly can be so and they disagree with each other more than we disagree with each other yeah so nat go listen to that one <laughs> if you want people disagreeing um so finally if you do like what we do here please rate us on apple podcasts or stitcher or uh, google play google play are we on google play i think so oh cool um my brother sent me a text that to tell us to get on google play and i ignored it good um, but now good. i can tell him that we did it and i didn't even have to do anything so that's cool we're pretty sure we are okay anyway wherever you get your podcast please rate and review us uh because we love you um five star reviews only uh i don't think the actual the review button because, will work if you no. give us less well, than and, five stars and here's the thing too we're all about the potential and not the actual here yeah and if you rate us five stars that contains all the stars, so it contains That's all true. possibilities. So whatever you actually to, think exactly is in there. Is in there with that five star review. Yep. Were you saying it's the only way to actually actually fully... review? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because if fully... you do anything less, you're limiting your review. Yeah. Why would you want to limit? yourself? Why would you do that? Don't limit yourself. Achieve your potential. Give us five stars. I feel like we could start a cult. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, and finally, uh, read my webcomic, Pinporter Girl Detective. You can find that at pinporterdetective.com. I write words for it, and I conned a very good artist named Robin G into um, doing the pictures. Yep. And those are good. It's and also, good. my words are on it. Uh, so, until next time, just remember it's our party, and we'll self actualize if we want to. <laughs> what a sincere way to end the episode.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects. Of oblivion. Of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.